The following podcast is for healthcare professionals only. All views expressed belong to our speakers and don't necessarily reflect those of Nestle Health Science. Hello and welcome to Inside Medical Nutrition Podcast, a podcast powered by Nestle Health Science and hosted by me, Dr. Nia Patel. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Roseanne Mayer, a pediatric dietitian. We will be discussing the cow's milk prenatal symptom school, COMIS, and how can healthcare professionals be more aware of the symptoms and the diagnosis of cow's milk allergies? Hi, Roseanne. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about COMIS. We're going to go into that in much more detail, but I must admit, even though I'm a dietitian, it's something that I don't know much about. So I'm really looking forward to getting educated on this. But to start off, Roseanne, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? So what made you get into dietetics? And specifically, why did you become a specialist pediatric dietitian? Thank you, Lini. And it's amazing to be able to talk about Comus, which is a topic I'm so passionate about. And I think passion is really the background to why I got into all of this. I think I'm a pediatric dietitian, but my primary caseload isn't food allergy per se in pediatrics only. So I take children, I would say, up till 16, but the vast majority of my patients are below two. And I straddle both IgE as well as non-IgE mediated allergy. One of the reasons I got into it, of course, I work in pediatrics, but is also that I could see the problem with diagnosis and often the recognition that was not optimal. And I could mm. see the role that dietitians could play within that and also the role within improving diets of these children. And last thing, I think it's very personal to me. I suffer from allergies myself, so I carry okay. an adrenaline pen. So I think that is really where my passion for this topic starts. Now, that's amazing. So you talked about having a clinical caseload. Are you involved in any other work, for example, with specialist groups, the British yeah. Dietetic Association or any other association? Yeah. It's a great question. The answer is absolutely yes. I started off, I think it was almost for 12 years, I was the chair of the British Dietetic Association Specialist Group for Food Allergy. I've migrated out of that, handed over to very capable people, and I'm more not involved in the European Academy for Allergy and Clinical Immunology, and I'm the current chair for the Allied Health and Primary Care section. In fact, it's one of the biggest groups, almost 3,000 members. Wow. It's a great challenge. So it's more kind of a, an overview on trying to improve the education. But then I'm also involved within many charities within the UK. So I'm, for example, a trustee for Arfit Awareness, where I come with a pediatric side. I'm okay. also with an Allergy UK anaphylaxis campaign. I'm looking at whatever they're writing, so from a scientific perspective, and also for FPIES UK, I'm heavily involved with in those charities as well. Amazing. So it definitely sounds like we are speaking to the right person. And I can already sense your passion for nutrition. In all the different roles that you've got going on, what are your specialist passion projects that you are involved in? At the moment, I think passions move and change. At the moment, I would say my passion lies within Undernutrition, so faltering growth, in particular, allergy, cosmic allergy, big part. And then I'm so passionate about feeding difficulties. And when I say feeding difficulties, the whole spectrum of feeding difficulties. So we have lots of projects coming out and task forces within IAKI. So actually a systematic review coming out. So I would say that at the moment is my passion, but you might talk to me in five years time and it might be a different passion within and food allergy. 
Yeah, and, and it's great that your passions evolve. So if we do a little bit of a segue to talking about Comus, am I pronouncing it right? You're pronouncing it absolutely right. Okay. So if we're segueing and talking about Kermis, let's unpack that a little bit so that we can get our listeners to really understand it. What does it actually stand for? What does the acronym Kermis yeah. stand for? Yeah. It's Cow's Milk Related Symptom Score. So Cow's Milk Related Symptom Score. And yeah, it's we use it Kermis and I think a lot of people forget what the acronym stays, stands for because you see the cow's milk within that acronym already. Okay. And when was it initially created? So actually, it was already created in 2015 when the first group and uh, under Professor Ivan Vandenplast started to develop this symptom score. So it actually has a, a long history of now almost eight years. Okay. So it's, it's 2015 you mentioned, and since 2015, it stayed the same or has it evolved and changed? And that's something we'll talk about more, but actually that's the strength of Comus. It has evolved and it has evolved. In fact, we've updated in 2022, so last year. But something that you'll see throughout our discussion, whenever it evolves, it does not just evolve without any evidence. It's an evidence-based evolution of the symptom score. So yes, last year we've published an update, so 2022. Okay. So it's recently been updated. Have you, in your various roles and in your different capacities and your different passions, been involved in the development or the updating of this score? Yeah. So I would love to say I was involved in 2015, but no, <laughs> not in 2015. But the core group with Professor Ivan Vandenplas as the chair, and we've got from different countries, so like Kanya Sayevska and Chris, Christophe Dupont from France, that has not changed. But I've been very fortunate to join the team in 2019. So I was very much involved in the updated version in, of 2022 and quite proud to be a dietitian within this team no, of allergists and gastroenterologists. But crucial to have a dietitian there as well. So I agree. let's go now into looking at Comis in a little bit more detail and getting a broader overview and then also a detailed overview. So what is the absolute aim of Comis? So the absolute aim of Comis is to raise awareness in patients where cow's milk allergy should be considered as a diagnosis. And please note, I'll use the terminology of raise awareness. This is not yeah. a diagnostic tool. So okay. that is really the primary aim. There are smaller secondary aims, which I want to mention as well. So while that's the primary aim, we have also to have a tool that reduces the time for healthcare professionals that that they have something they can use to shorten the clinic time to really mm -hmm. help pay the healthcare professionals. Whilst we raise awareness, it is really there also to support our colleagues and our healthcare professionals as a secondary aim as well. Okay, so if we're looking at specific patient groups that the tool is designed for, what are the groups and why specifically those groups? Yeah. So this, I wanted to say, we, we all know that cow's milk allergies are diagnosed specifically in early childhood. And we see the vast majority of children are diagnosed within the first year of life, but particularly around the first six months of life, because cow's milk often is the first food that a child gets exposed to. That mm. is something that we have with the update really specified and saying our primary aim group is children below the age of one year. Because that okay. is the group where Osmoc is more prominent and where we see children present also. So below one year of life. 
Okay. So if we then go to the diagnosis of cow's milk allergy, why is the diagnosis, particularly for non-IgE cow's milk allergy, so difficult for clinicians to get? Dinia, it's a challenge that we always have, and it's such a reasonable challenge to have. You have to remember that symptoms like regurgitation, constipation, diarrhea, skin symptoms, respiratory symptoms are common in childhood per se. So if you think about, for example, a child having diarrhea, you think, gosh, a child could have a gastro bug, a child is vomiting outside having a bug. You know that the lowest of facial sphincter pressure often you have in early infancy dysregulation. So regurgitation often occurs. Then a child can have a cough, a cold, a fever, and they get a rash, for example. So the challenge lies with what is normal Mm. with an early childhood and when can it be a cow's milk allergy? And I think that's why, in particular, in non-IgE-mediated allergy, so just to clarify, non-IgE-mediated allergy is the delayed type allergy. So that means it can be the gastrointestinal skin symptoms or sometimes respiratory symptoms, but the symptoms can take up to 48 hours to develop. So you can imagine then how hard it is to Mm. link those symptoms to foods. No, no. And I also remember hearing that one of the symptoms in terms of cow's milk allergy is also lots of crying, except crying and children do that, right? (laughs) Yeah. And it's great you bringing that up. And we often think crying colic, and I'll talk a bit more when we talk about crying, but a colicky baby that cries a lot is very frequent, very common. But when do you say that crying is now excessive, if that makes sense? Yeah. And I guess all the symptoms you've gone through is that then all those symptoms are included in COMIS? 100%, 100%. And I think it's worth that you and me can walk through each one of these symptoms and think through each of these symptoms separately, because I think it's important for our listeners to understand not only why we've included them, but how are they scored within the COMIS? Okay. Why don't we do that? Why don't we, why don't we take one symptom out and then perhaps practically also as you mentioned, look at how COMIS works in the scoring system. Over to you in terms of which symptom you want to start exploring first. So first of all, I think it's important for me to mention, it's not only the podcast that our listeners will have, but there is a useful guide as a PDF, which you can download. So everything that I'm actually discussing today, you can also get in writing. So I think let's start with the crying because we touched on colic before and I want to Say we used crying as a proxy marker for pain. Because mm. We know that pain is commonly experienced. Now, when you look at the coma score, so some of you of the listeners might be already quite used to the coma score. But for those of you that are not, each score is, has got a has different number of scores, so up to six, except okay. for respiratory. So that means crying has up to six levels. So it's a zero up to six. And each level, we give you a score of severity. Now, the back to this is, many of our listeners know that the definition for colic would be defined as more than three hours of crying a day for at least three days during one week. We've used that principle and said, okay, so if you have a score of zero, it's less than one hour of crying per day. And And is that that continuous crying, Rosanna? Yeah, that's continuous crying. All children cry for short periods, but this it's this continuous crying that just does not okay. stop. And so that then goes up 
In our score, for example, the score of two is one and a half to two hours of crying per day, continuous crying, and okay. that goes up. It might seem impossible, but I do have at symptom six, scoring six, more than five hours of crying. You do see that. Oh, so my goodness. Really a proxy score for the amount of pain a child experiences. Okay. So then you do that scoring for crying, and then would you do that the same for another score? So maybe exactly. talk me through another score. Exactly. So I think let's go to the next score, and I think that is regurgitation. And regurgitation is really a complicated score to think about, because what is regurgitation? Okay, because some people say, okay, Rosanne, that is reflux, or is it gastrophageal reflux disease? So we have used the term regurgitation just for feeds that come up, visibly come up. Okay. Now, then the next question is, okay, great, but how much? Is, aren't you in a minute to be burping babies anyway? <laughs> exactly. And it was a challenge. And I want to say this regurgitation and all of those horses did not go without a lot of discussion. So when you look at the regurgitation, so first of all, we said the symptoms, like with the other symptoms, need to be present for more than one week because a child that is sick can often vomit because they're sick. So you don't want mm. to score if you're sick. But then we've tried to quantify a zero is zero to two episodes of regurgitation, which we see as normal because okay, there's an, the Americans have a very nice term, spitting up. So okay. zero, zero would be zero to two episodes per day. And then it goes up. And so we've tried to quantify. We've tried to quantify that as a score of one, it's more than three episodes, but less than five of less than five milliliters. That's a teaspoon. Now, again, we had that discussion. You know what we're thinking? And I'm thinking around on a bib or a baby girl. You have these spots that are on yeah. there. But then it goes up where you we have tried to quantify and say, have they got more episodes and not only more episodes, but is it half of the feed or is it all of the feed? So the highest score, again, out of six, is if it a child regurgitates all of the feed after every feed. Oh, goodness. So, so that is important. It goes on to the severity. And you can see already where we're going because we mm. have a score for pain, crying. Mm. We've now got a score for regurgitation bringing this up. So you'll start seeing how these combinations start building up. Okay. So I think, so we've got the pain, we've got the regurgitation. I think, therefore, as we are still busy with a gut, it's quite good to think because regurgitation is a gut symptoms. Yeah. To also think about the lower part, you know, the stools. stools. Yeah. And I think with the stools, this is an important consideration because we've recently changed, for those of you, the listeners who've used the Comus school before, we've changed from using the Bristol stool to the BITS, which is the Brussel Infant and Toddler School scale. The okay. reason for the change was just because that's a validated score for non-potty trained infants. We want them non-potty trained because remember we discussed that the children primarily present within the first year of life. So you're not expecting a potty drained child yeah. there. Now, like all the other scores, so we already know the rhythm, it's out of six. Yeah. And I do suggest to our listeners that they actually go and look at the bits because what I will explain now is going to sound very abstract, but bits has got lovely photos of yes. every stool. 
So we've got type one, two, and three. These are really hard stools to describe it. Goes from rabbit droppings, small yes. rabbit droppings, to a hard sausage. But that's the the one spot. one end. Yeah, exactly. That we would then score at four, and a nicely formed soft stool, which we've got a photo of, is a zero. And then we go to the other end, which is four is a type five and type six. It's like a porridge stool, if I may say so. And then we yeah. go, the highest score really is two watery stool that is totally synced into the nappy. Okay. I think this is really improved from what we've got before because the photos are within the nappy itself, so you can really see. Okay. So we've gone through pain, marker, we've gone through the gut, regurgitation, we've gone through stools, but a primary symptom also is the skin. Okay. And within skin, we have, I want to categorize into two skin symptoms. We have the eczema type skin symptoms and okay. we have the urticaria or the angioedema. Okay. I am going to start with the eczema type symptoms because, again, we have scoring here for the eczema type symptoms. Now, for that, remember, it's still out of six, but because we've got two parts, we've yeah. got the eczema and then we've got the immediate type urticaria and the angioedema. The eczema, we've got different areas here. And here, again, it will sound very abstract, but we actually provide the users a score. Yeah. Look at the face, the trunk, if it's all over. And so you can't just say, oh, it's mild to moderate by visualization. We actually show a chart of the whole okay. body. To give that comparison. Exactly. Exactly. So again, it's it, to make it more visual, of course, the chart, if you've got it all over the body, of course, you'll come to scoring to six at the end. But it's this is very important. And I think we've had in the past often heard people just go, oh, it's in the face. It looks just quite severe in the face. Oh, it's quite severe. So our score is six. But actually, if we go just and say the eczema is in the face, and head and trunk, it would be a much lower score than having it generalized all over the of body. Of course. Okay. So that's one part. The second part is the urticaria and the angioedema. Now, again, I want to highlight angioedema, which is the swelling, more profound, deeper swelling, often around the eyes, the lip and areas, was not part of the previous coma score. But we've decided to actually include it just because we have found that in the past, the distinguishing between angioedema and urticaria, so urticaria is really the hives, often they flow yeah. into each other. So we okay. want it to be reflective, and these are very typical of an IgE-mediated cow's milk allergy. Now, here, I want to say it's much simpler. Okay, it's much okay. simpler. It's either a yes or a no. Okay. If it's a no, it's a zero. If it's a yes, it's a six. Okay. Okay, so you've got two scores then coming out from the skin, right? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And I think from skin perspective, it is a topic that often causes confusion. That's why it's really important. Have a look at the, uh, the tool itself and see it, but you'll have it seen in the eczema side and then the angioedema and urticaria, that is together. It can be both or it can be one of them, but that's a yes or a no. So a no, angioedema, or both are not pregnant, pre present, no, zero, and yes, present, a six. Uh, okay. Any other symptoms to add in there? So we've done and skin. 
Absolutely. So we've done skin, we've done gut, we've done pain. Now it's the respiratory symptoms. So around 20 to 30% of children with cow's milk allergy do have respiratory symptoms. Didn't you realize was that high? Yes, actually it is. We often have discussions around the etiology, but that's a different podcast, I think, and a different discussion around that. But this is one difference, unlike the other scores where we go zero to six, this one is zero to three. And again, the first proviso is, of course, you want to make sure that the child does not have a normal seasonal cough or cold. Okay, so you're not going to score. So that has to be taken into account. So you rule out they don't have a seasonal cough or cold. And here we say the symptoms are chronic cough, runny nose, wheezing. Now, they can be one of them or any of them, but there's either no respiratory symptoms, slight symptoms, mild symptoms, severe symptoms. And here it is the discretion of your healthcare professional because a chronic cough or runny nose it can be runny nose on a daily basis, or it can be runny nose three or four times a week. There is some discretion to score this, but therefore the, you can see the weighting is mm. not as heavy in terms heavy. of the score. Yeah. So what is, from all of these symptoms, you're going to have an overall score, which you then calculate. So what's the maximum possible overall score? What's the minimum? And when does a clinician have to start thinking, okay, we need to so, do something? Absolutely. So it goes up to 33. Goes up okay. to 33, zero or 33. The cutoff that we have adjusted to in 2022, anything from 10 and above, uh, okay. would be increasing your awareness and saying, oh, this may be cosmic allergy. I need okay. to start the process of considering this as a diagnosis. And then the, the clinician needs to decide, okay, Am I going to start the diagnostic process? Okay. So it's really above from 10 and above below six. Uh, it is unlikely that this is related to cow's allergy. So other diagnoses need to be taken into account for, for that. Okay. And what about six to 10? Yeah, six to 10. I often have this discussion. So I think the best way to explain it to the to anybody listening to us talking Within IgE-mediated allergy, you've got tests, skin prick tests, and you have cutoffs that are, this is a 95% confidence interval. You definitely have a cow's milk allergy, but then you have an in-between group where you need to, to challenge and use your clinical discretion. So this is really a six to nine for me is in that same category to say, it whilst it's unlikely, it still does not mean we rule out cow's milk allergy as a, a differential diagnosis in our head. Uh, and this is why it's so important that you want to have this awareness tool in a group of people that actually have a clinical background, so healthcare professionals, mm. that they can put the puzzle together with other puzzle pieces. Yeah. So for me as a healthcare professional, for example, if I had a score of six to nine, we don't talk about feeding difficulties, for example. But if you've got severe feeding difficulties as a healthcare professional, I'll go, actually, I might consider this also as a diagnosis. You might have a healthcare professional with a different background to go. So it's all about saying a 10 and above, it's more likely, and you'd want to really increase the awareness saying this is pushes you up into the likelihood of a cosmic allergy. But I think six to nine is one of that category where the healthcare professional that clinical history 
plays a very important role. And they might be as lucky to have than other tests also. If you've got very mild symptoms, then you might think, okay, I'm going to do a skin prick test and see whether that might be increasing the likelihood for a cosmic allergy diagnosis. Yeah, no, that makes absolute sense. You have done a wonderful job at giving us an overview of Comus. Is there anything else that you want to add to that? Before we talk about the evidence, I do want to hover just around again that we spoke about the patients that to use it for, and that's below the age of one. But I think also we're very specific in Alcomis guidance that we say this is in the hands of a healthcare professional. So we want it really for a healthcare professional. And you've heard me now saying the clinical history is absolutely critical in the discretion yeah. of a healthcare professional. I think that with a, an awareness tool that sh always should be said, it should be in the right hands. Absolutely. And it's really important because it really helps facilitate putting together the different pieces of the puzzle. Yeah. I think one topic that we didn't touch on, most probably if you do have a score from te of 10 and above, what would be the next process? And I think oh, yeah. the diagnostic process is also key as a healthcare professional. So we would say two to four week elimination diet. And I'm hoping here that our dietitian would shine here in supporting an elimination yeah. diet. I would never uh, suggest an elimination diet without thinking about the implication of removing cow's milk from whether that's the mother and the child's diet, you need to think what you're replacing with. And mm -hmm. I think that's really important. But even more important is the reintroduction. Your diagnostic okay. process is not completed until yeah. a reintroduction has occurred. And so I think that also needs to be reiterated is that the diagnostic process is part of the awareness. So we raise awareness. You do a diagnostic process and within the diagnostic process, it's the reintroduction to confirm your diagnosis or actually to say, no, it's not Kelsmuck allergy. Okay. No, that's a really important point to touch on. I'm going to try and move over now and talk about evidence. What is, in a world where we are focusing more on evidence-based medicine, what research is there behind the use, the application of Kermis? Yeah. Are you aware of any published studies? Actually, not any, there are 25 published studies at the moment, which include validation studies, which include also the application of different population, different countries, because I think the language also in different countries is so critical. And as we're speaking, I know we are busy with further publications. So as it stands, we've got 25 publications. And I think that's really exciting and unique to COMIS, that it is an evidence-based process. Brilliant. And I guess all the research that keeps happening also then has implications on what aspects of the score get updated. 100%. And as I said at the beginning, nothing gets adjusted without there being the evidence. And when we have the evidence, in, in for example, the last round, we reviewed the evidence. And then outside of that, we then had a kind of a modified eDelphi process where mm -hmm. we have a consensus because there is evidence. And then we have to also reach amongst us consensus around the weight that we put to the evidence. So we went through several rounds before we actually came to this modified version mm. of the COMIS. Mm. No. And then in your own clinical practice, and I guess with all the different colleagues that you work with in your different roles, what is the impact of using Comist successfully? So I use it 
my experience is in different domains. So I use it for myself to kind of make sure that I've not missed anything. And I think okay. that's also great for a dietitian to use. But I have really been heavily involved because as within the UK setting that I worked, it's, we have a strong primary care setting. And yeah. that primary care setting is also time limited. So that means consultations need to be as time effective as possible. And so I think that has been where I really see the strength is okay. for that limitation in really being effective and highlighting it and creating awareness. Because within the primary care, you can imagine the amount of diagnoses you need to think about. Mm -hmm. Within the patients that come through the door, they'll have just normal colic, they'll just have diarrhea, things like that. So I think that's really where comb is within the primary care setting, certainly where I've been exposed to comes to its own. Yeah. And you mentioned obviously the use of comus for dietitians. Are there any other particular healthcare professionals that you feel comus would have the most impact with? Uh, Linio, primary care, whatever your healthcare setting, the first responders, if I may call it like that, whether that's in a European country, which offers is a pediatrician where the parents come to as first responders. But I can, there are so many other healthcare professionals that I think outside of dietitians and GPs and but within a UK settings, it's health visitors as well as a yeah. you know, where it can be. And I think that's really important to see who are our first responders within healthcare professionals that have been trained that mm. where this. And I think there, every country should look who sees the children first. And I think that is really where you want to focus on these using comas. No, I couldn't agree even more. Roseanne, I've heard that you're going to be presenting some really interesting data about the use of different scores. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about that? Yes, you've heard correct. So it's at an upcoming conference. So what we've tried to do with a group that is largely different to the COMIS group, we've put a group of healthcare professionals straddling primary, secondary and tertiary care from actually all different countries. So Europe, and we've got US, but so we've looked at what is available. So if a healthcare professional was going to on Google now and they were going cow's milk allergy questionnaire, we've used the term questionnaire tools and score as search term, what would they find? And mm -hmm. then what we've done is we've looked at the evidence for each. And that, of course, includes the COMIS as well. And then based on that, we had a Delphi within these healthcare professionals to come up with consensus to provide healthcare professionals all over the world with guidance. How do you work with questionnaires or like the comis when you've got them available? How do you use them in clinical practice? What is the positive and what is the negative of using these questionnaires? We hope that will really add on to the practicality of using the tools that are currently available and in particular also how healthcare professionals should use comas. I imagine that'll be very valuable. I hope so. As we draw our conversation to a close, what would you say your main takeaways are in regards to comas? My main takeaway would be for any listener to say there is a score and yeah. it's an awareness score. It is heavily evidence-based and it is led by a group of healthcare professionals that work in this area. So they have clinical experience. It is a score that is alive. What I mean mm -hmm. is it is constantly changing, but whenever it changes, 
We make sure that there's the evidence backed up to it. And then I think another very important message is it's an awareness tool. It's not yeah. a diagnostic, diagnostic tool. Yes. And it is best used in the hands of a healthcare professional. So I hope, yeah, I think I've got most no, of the No, very messages. points. Yeah, no. And is there anything else important that you want to share with our health professionals that could help them improve their practice now? So I, I think outside of using the score, I think what I want to share with anybody that's listening to this is that it's a, a conversation that goes in all directions. So we do welcome feedback and I think mm. we welcome different environments to using this score. So yeah. if there's anybody listening saying we've been using it and it's in a different country and you've not been using it, we welcome research, we welcome collaboration. And I think that's an important message for anybody listening to our discussion today to say, use it. Tell yeah. us what your experience is and come back. We are open and prepared for further research. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic way to end the podcast. Rosanne, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure to discuss this very important topic. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Medical Nutrition. If you enjoyed the podcast and found the content useful, please share it with your colleagues and consider subscribing so you never miss an episode. For more information on this topic or to share your feedback, please visit the Nestle Health Science N Plus Hub or click on the link in the show notes.